0: Welcome to High Unhealthy, Energized by A6 Wellness. Each week, you will learn of the benefits of proper nutrition, supplementation, and personal development to live a healthy and abundant life. Now, here's your personal advocate for living a healthy and active
1: lifestyle, Audrey Kerger. Thank you for joining me today on High Unhealthy, Energized by A6 Wellness. I'm your hostess, Audrey Kerger, and my guest today is Dr. Jordan Tischler. He is a leading expert in the field of medical cannabis therapeutics. As an emergency physician, he has treated countless alcoholics and drug users. His observation that he had never seen a cannabis overdose led Dr. Tischler to delve deeply into the science of cannabis safety and treatment. After years of research and learning, Dr. Tischler brings his knowledge, reason, and caring to patients here at Inhale Medical Consulting, and through his advocacy work at local and national levels. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Tischler. I'm extremely excited to have you on with us again.
2: It's always a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Audrey.
1: So again, welcome back. Let's refresh our listeners just by giving them a little bit of a background on yourself and how you came into the cannabis industry.
2: Sure. So, you know, I'm a very sort of traditionally trained physician. I went to Harvard College, I went to Harvard Medical School, and I trained in internal medicine at the Brigham Women's Hospital here in Boston. Um, so, you know, very sort of died in the wool kind of thing. And then I've spent the last 15 or so years, uh, practicing emergency medicine for the VA, as you mentioned, and, you know, really did see all of those guys where, you know, it felt like some days, um, even the routine medicine was always complicated by various substance issues and, um, you know, when you do that, you really get to understand what's at stake. And um, when Massachusetts, where I work, uh, decided that we were going to enable us to use cannabis for medical purposes, that really sort of spawned me, as you had mentioned, to to kind of get into the details and say, look, if we're considering this as something serious here, then let's find And um, that was very eye-opening for me. Uh, and it's become something where uh, in, like, tra- treating people with a virus and uh, really increasing their quality of life.
1: Well, it sounds like you have definitely taken one side of the medical community and started focusing on another side and looking at how we can combine both individuals, find options, absolutely fantastic. Now, on the, when we had you with that, about chronic issues, pain and mental is living a life that is consuming cannabis for optimal health this time i would really like to focus on the opioid epidemic it's all over the news these days almost every time you turn on the tv you're seeing some sort of commercial or now you're hearing you know the opioid epidemic is so large can you really tell us how big this opioid problem in the u.s is
2: well excuse me it's um it's a very big problem. Um, you know, the current statistics look like there are more deaths from opioids, both of a prescription and, uh, street nature. Um, than there are things like automobile deaths or, um, handgun deaths, uh, both of which are obviously major problems in their own right. Um, so I think that this is something that we really need to be able to address. On the other hand, and I certainly don't in any way, shape, or form mean to make light of the opioid ed- epidemic, one of the things that I found very interesting is that before we started to talk about the opioid epidemic, we were talking about an obesity epidemic. And somehow the obesity epidemic has not gone away, uh, and uh, but it's been eclipsed by this national concern with the opioid epidemic. And where this is relevant to our discussion today, uh, is in so far as much of the products that are out there for treating patients really kind of overlook the fact that our whole organisms and really we need to think about them in the context of their greater healthcare needs and goals. And um, so, you know, what I often say is, you know, take two brownies and call me in the morning isn't practicing good medicine Um, because, you know, a lot of Americans are overweight. Many of them are diabetic, particularly in our older population. And we really need to think about all of those sorts of things. Uh, I certainly don't mean to digress from our discussion of the opioids, but this kind of gets me on my soapbox.
1: Well, no think that people do need to understand there are so many epidemics going across this country currently, and it's floating into other nations. And, you know, people follow the United States and look at what we're doing and want to be like us because we're known as the land of the free and the home of the brave. But at the same time, what are we really doing here for our citizens and how are we helping them? So I truly believe that you know, both problems, almost all of the problems go hand in hand working with one another and trying to figure so, out how can we solve these problems, and at the same time, what's causing these problems that we are needing to solve them?
2: I think that that's a really good question. Um, and I don't think anyone really has a handle on it, but um, you know the 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 root of our obesity epidemic is maybe clearer at least to me insofar as americans are generally more sedentary than they were say a hundred years ago Um, most of our jobs have become sort of white collar uh, oriented jobs and uh, uh, simultaneous with that we've gotten so much food security That, uh, you know, people are encouraged to overeat and that if you uh, go to a restaurant and somebody were to put a plate in front of you with a sort of reasonable um, portion of food, you would think that they were, uh, you know, that they were... uh, being stingy. Uh, so, you know, we've got this kind of mindset that more is more and, and that's really led us in, into trouble. Um, and then you add in the fast food stuff where, you know, you can get very cheap food, um, for, um, you know, with, with incredible caloric density. And, and that's, a, that's a huge problem, particularly in the lower socioeconomic groups. Um, when you look at the opioid epidemic you know, it's very easy to get into sort of these conspiracy theories that, you know, the drug companies wanted to push opioids and the drug companies have the doctors all in their back pocket. But, you know, in reality, that stuff doesn't hold a ton of water because most of the opioid medications aren't on patent anymore and therefore they're not making, you know, tons of money for any particular pharmaceutical company. And I'm sure that there are physicians out there who are um, misbehaving, but the balance of physicians and certainly the people that I know well um, are really incredibly dedicated to their patients' well-being and have no particular desire to prescribe opioids unless somebody needs them for something. Reason. But what we do know is that of the world's opioid supply, the United States consumes 80% of it, which is obviously rather disproportionate given our population. So the question becomes why are Americans in so much pain? So much pain. And I think that's the golden question, and nobody has for it yet.
1: Well, let's talk about some of the root causes of the opioid problem. Speaking about pain, I think that really flows right into that. You know, people in the 1970s were going against this drug war and we've got to fight against drugs. And now those same drugs, that this drug war that we were fighting against are in a little white pill in an orange bottle given to you by your doctor and, you know, over the counter through your prescription. And this is a huge issue. Why would we want to even be prescribing this, but what are some of these causes of this opioid problem besides just people thinking they're in pain?
2: Well, you know, I think that that remains very hard to answer. We do know that the um, the huge spike in uh, opioid use happened even later than what you mentioned. It really happened through the, through the 90s and early 2000s. Um, And the things that drove that uh, are unclear. Um, We know the way in which big pharma may be complicitous has more to do with the fact that they put money into lobbying for certain um, changes in the medical um, approach. For example, in the early 2000s, there was a big initiative to treat pain better. And, you know, if you think about that, that doesn't sound like a bad goal. Um, one of the things that came down from that was this idea that pain was the fifth vital sign. So, you know, you have your temperature and your blood pressure and your heart rate and all this stuff. And that, you know, if you were going into the doctor's office or into an emergency room, the triage nurse was supposed to ask you, you um, you know, what was your level of pain when you came in? And then on your exit from the facility, they were supposed to stop and ask you again, is your pain better? And or did your treating physician do a good job of addressing it? And I think that, you know, the, um, as they say, the, the road to hell is paved with best intentions. And that was certainly well intentioned. But the net result of it was an was in perhaps a um over focus on treating pain in particular with prescriptions as opposed to any of the other ways that could be used such as mindfulness and such like that Um, and so i think that that kind of led to changes in prescribing behavior i must say that personally and this is not just to pat myself on the back I saw this coming. I looked at that thing and I said, "This is going to cause a problem," and so I got into a lot of trouble with my superiors at the VA because I just wasn't willing to play that game. And I think, in retrospect, um, I'm, I'm grateful uh, that I was able to resist it. But um, but you know, it, it it becomes difficult when the entire system is bearing down on you, saying, "You know, you need to meet meet these objectives," and I think that that had somewhat to do with what we what we've seen.
1: Well, I think those are all really great points, and I love hearing that you were a little bit more forward-thinking than many. And we do need to take a very short break, but when we come back, we will continue our discussion with cannabis expert, Dr. Jordan Tischler of Inhale MD in Massachusetts. One minute, and we will talk to you very soon when High Unhealthy returns. Awaken, adjust, and aspire to hear more High Unhealthy
0: after this short rest break.
3: CannabisRadio.com one in as little as four weeks bringing co2 extraction to the masses learn more at apeks supercritical.com four-week build excludes high production systems
0: let's get back to getting high on healthy energized by a6 wellness
1: only on cannabisradio.com welcome back my guest today is dr tischler who graduated from both Harvard College and then Harvard Medical School, affectionately known together as Preparation H, trained in internal medicine at the esteemed Brigham and Women's Hospital, and has spent many years working with the underserved, particularly our veterans. Dr. Tischler is also a parallel entrepreneur working for patients' well-being in the corporate space, helping to elevate dosing and safety profiles of medication and helping to establish best practices for bringing new cannabis products to the market. Now, we were just chatting about why we have this huge opioid problem, and Dr. Tischler, I'd now like to ask: What are some of the risks associated with opioid use?
2: That's a great question. But before I get into that, I want to follow up another point from the previous set, if you, if that, if I may, um, and that's um, one of the things that people don't focus on much, and I think that this leads us to our discussion of cannabis. Um, Is that when you have somebody who has, there are really only three classes of medications that you can use to treat them. Uh, There's Tylenol, which lives in a class by itself. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, and then there's a class called the non steroidal anti inflammatory medications, and that includes things like Advil, ibuprofen, Aleve, that sort of thing. And those things work pretty well, but not everybody can take them because they may have stomach ulcer problems or kidney problems or something like that. Um, and in fact, sometimes they work well, but not well enough for whatever the pain is. And after those two categories, there's opiates, and that's really what we got. So um, if you have any reason that you can't take one or both of those two other categories, then opiates are it. And, um, that in and of itself presents a problem. And, you know, one of the things that I wish the federal government were doing more of is saying, look, we have an opiate problem. Instead of beating up on the doctors, let's go find some new novel medications that can help the problem. Enter cannabis, right? Um, cannabis presents, excuse me, a completely novel, very safe approach to treatment of pain. But before we get into that, let me go back to your question, which is what are the risks of using opiates? Well, there really are kind of two primary risks, and I don't think that this will surprise anybody. The first risk is that the opiates themselves can kill you. If you take too much of them, they depress your breathing and your heart rate. And ultimately, if that's if there's enough of them, uh, that that's lights out, right? Um, and then the second issue, which is connected to the first, is that they can be habit-forming. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about are they habit-forming and uh, over what period of time and um, what sort of dose and, uh, and you know, there was some discussion, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago that that yes, they're habit forming if you're misusing them, but if you're using them appropriately for pain control, then it, they're not habit forming. And we've learned that that's not true, that they're habit forming whether you're behaving or not behaving, um, that you know the chemistry is such that you, they're just um, uh, habit forming. And you know, what we've also learned over this period of time is that they can be habit forming over a fairly short period of use, meaning, you know, you're safe sort of at three days of use, at seven days of use, you know, you're probably okay. But beyond a week, you know, then you're already starting to get into the area where there might be a problem. I'm certainly not saying that if you need them all the time that you're going to have a problem. Uh, I'm not saying that if you use them for 10 days or 14 days, you're going to have a problem. But the risks go up. And, you know, what we know is that about 25% of people who use for chronic pain um, will develop that kind of a dependence on them. Uh, so the other thing that happens once a dependence has developed is that there is a tolerance. And so the doses needed to be effective, um, either for treatment of pain or for prevention of the withdrawal, then escalate. So now you have somebody who's using more time. But the risk of the first part of the point is specifically related to how much you use, milligram for milligram. So less is better and more is worse. So we get into this kind of a snowball effect that we really need to um, be aware of and try to pull out of before you know the plane dives into the deck.
1: Well, it's such a sad story to hear that the only three ways that we have to currently treat pain is Tylenol, Advil, and opioids. Yeah, When well. there's so many other ways to look at your life and eat healthier and stop consuming so many bad products. Um, you know, with h- having a health coaching background, it's just so prevalent to so many individuals that I've personally worked with who talk about having pain. And when we cut out coffee and we cut out soda and we cut out fast food and we get them eating more um, raw earth vegetables, fruits, whole grains, A lot of their pain just starts to normally dissipate, and it's very sad that our medical professionals are really not even trained to teach people about what they put in their mouth is really what their body is, and that there are more treatments than just these three. But let's talk about another Mother Nature plant, cannabis. Is cannabis, and can cannabis be helpful for treating pain?
2: Oh, undoubtedly. Um, I mean, you know, you have um, clearly heard the refrain, we need more research and um, you'll hear that often from physicians and more often even from the politicians. Uh, And I think that there's, that's inarguable, right? I mean, we could never turn down more research, but the real question becomes, do we have enough data at this point to be able to make responsible decisions about care and policy? Um, Now, knowing that as we acquire more information, we'll refine those. And I think the answer there is very clearly yes. I thought that several years ago when I started doing this kind of medicine. But the big kicker this year in 2017 was the report from the National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, which looked at the use of cannabis and the data that we have for it across a range of um, illnesses or conditions that it can be treated. And pain was top of that list. And ultimately their conclusion was that for the treatment of pain, cannabis is sort of had, there's incontrovertible evidence. So, uh, you know, I, I, think that that, that discussion, um, should be probably not is, but should be done. The answer is yes. And certainly in my practice, I find it to be very successful it's not hundred percent. Nothing's perfect, right? And it doesn't always mean that we can stop all the opioids. Um, in fact, when I approach p- patients treatment of pain, I don't stop their opioids. Um, what I do is I treat their pain with the cannabis. And what I find is that over time, if the goal is reach for the cannabis first, rather than reaching for the opioid first, the the opioids just sort of become less and less relevant and oftentimes completely irrelevant. And it, they naturally go away.
1: Well, speaking about using cannabis in addition to opioids, is it actually safe to be consuming opioids and cannabis in addition to one another?
2: Yes, um, that's a great question. And the reality here is that cannabis does not affect one's breathing or heart rate the way opioids do. It's interesting that on a, on a sort of molecular receptor level, the uh, cannabis receptor and the opioid receptor in many of the locations related to perception of pain are bound together. So they work synergistically through these receptor complexes, but they're both, com- you know, well, the cannabis is absolutely safe to add to the opioids. The other thing that's really interesting is that we have studies now that show that When you add cannabis to the opioids, you can reduce the opioid dose to about 20% of what it was. So if you were taking 100 milligrams, you're likely only going to need 20 milligrams. That's a huge reduction, particularly going back to the statement I made earlier, which is that your risk from the opioids is proportionate to how much you're taking. So if you can cut from 100 milligrams to 20 milligrams, you have just reduced your risk by 80%, which is huge.
1: That is absolutely phenomenal to know that replacing or utilizing an herb in conjunction with an opioid can help reduce your risks of failure to breathe by 80%. Mm. (laughs) Just mind-blowing and phenomenal. Now, we do need to take another short break, when we come back, we will continue our discussion with Dr. Jordan Tischler of Inhale MD. More when High Unhealthy returns in a moment.
0: Awaken, adjust, and aspire to hear more High Unhealthy after this short rest break.
3: Introducing Blue Moon CBD straight from the bluegrass of Kentucky. With our special nano emulsion process, you'll not only get the best CBD available, you'll get more of it not all CBD is the same. It's your body. It's your choice. Get relief from inflammation, anxiety, and stress. Go to www.bluemoonhemp.com and use code HEMP420 for a 20% discount on your order. Balance your body. Balance your life. Make it Blue Moon CBD. The Smoke Industry headlines, business updates, medical reports, marketing, and e commerce education rolled up perfectly for your consumption. Let's grow together. The Cannabis Radio Network. CannabisRadio.com.
0: Ignite the conversation on some trending topics along the Cannabis Radio social media network. Join our crew of thousands on our Cannabis Radio page on Facebook or at Canna Radio, C A N N A Radio on Twitter. Let's get back to getting high on healthy, energized by A6 Wellness, only on CannabisRadio.com.
1: Welcome back to High on Healthy, Energized by A6 Wellness. My guest today is Dr. Jordan Tischler who is a Harvard-trained holistic care expert. As a leading expert on cannabis therapeutics, Dr. Tischler employs Western medicine and cannabis care to treat a wide array of illnesses. He is additionally focused on stress management, insomnia, and human sexuality. The intersection of cannabis medicine and sexuality is a particular area of expertise for Dr. Tischler. After years of research and learning, Dr. Tischler is an accomplished author, teacher, nationally sought-after speaker, and tireless patient advocate, and caring and dedicated physician, as Dr. Tischler will work with you and your care team to manage your illness or improve your well-being and quality of life. Now, we were just talking about using cannabinoids and cannabis and medical marijuana along with the opioids that may be prescribed by your medical practitioner and how the safe combination is actually helping reduce the opioid usage. Now, what data do we have for use of cannabis for those who are in this situation?
2: Well, um, as I mentioned, I think that at this point we've got reams of data, and uh, the data is very... um, Uh, you know, at this point, I think the conclusion is there. So using cannabis, uh, either in place of, or in addition to the opioids for pain control, I think is a, is a a brilliant way of approaching the problem and, and decreasing the risk associated with the opioid use.
1: And how do you approach treating patients with pain or addiction with cannabis? How does that work for you and your practice?
2: Well, you know, I think that when, I, when I'm when i thinking about how best to essentially prescribe, although I, obviously we don't use that word, um, the cannabis f- for pain, I think about first and foremost, you know, how often or how much of the day is this particular person in pain? We have people who are in constant pain, Uh, you know, 24 seven. And then we have people who are in episodic pain. So maybe, you know, their shoulder hurts in the morning when they wake up, but after a few hours, the kinks work out and the rest of the day is okay, but the next morning will be a problem again. And so the timing of this, because, you know, um, cannabis comes with some intoxication, um, and, the intoxication, because it comes from THC, and because THC is um, part of what causes the pain relief, there's this—you know—it uh, they're they're connected, right? It's the same molecule, so you can't kind of get away from this issue, and you have to really address it head on as an. Uh, as a side effect. And for many patients, an unwelcome side effect, even if the intoxication or the high is generally pleasant, um, compared, for example, to what you might get on Percocet. The the reality here is that if you're um, a lawyer and you need to get up and go to work that morning, it may be very difficult to tolerate that sort of the side effect. So we need to really think carefully and constructively about how much time Uh, The patient is in pain and you have to think carefully about other lifestyle aspects so that you're not prescribing something that would work only if they stay home all day. But frankly, that's not who they are. And you would be interrupting their productivity and their quality of life with the medicine. Um, Once I've sort of sorted through that a little bit, um, you know, the the folks with the episodic discomfort do really well with inhaled cannabis. Because it's got quick onset, um, it's very effective, but it also has sort of a modest duration of that intoxication phase, meaning, you know, three or four hours, and you're kind of back to being productive if you were unproductive because of that intoxication. Um, The people who are sort of in 24 7 pain, I think, you know, look, if they're in a position where being a little bit buzzed all the time, Is better than how they are now then that's the right approach and in those cases I think much more about oral stuff you know also known as edibles um, where you know the time to onset is delayed uh, relative to inhalation but uh, once it kicks in it has a longer duration and so that you can give it kind of around the clock so you don't kind of get behind Um, but you've got a constant level. And in the opiate treatment world, um, we tend to think in terms of two types of opiates. Um, There's sort of uh, long acting opiates, something like an MS Contin, which gives you sort of long baseline coverage. And then there's something like a uh, uh, Percocet or a morphine, which are kind of more immediate action ma- medicines. And oftentimes we end up giving a combination of both of those. You give the long acting stuff to kind of take care of the baseline pain And then you use hopefully fairly little of this immediate release stuff to cover things when uh, it breaks through, like, you know, you had to get up and go to the supermarket or something, and now your back is hurting again. Um, And I tend to think of the same same kind of a rubric with cannabis, substituting the oral stuff for the long-acting form and the inhaled stuff for the short-acting form. So for many patients, that combination works really well and kind of covers the territory.
1: Well, that sounds like you definitely have a great treatment plan with your patients and we are running out of time, but I did want to throw in one last question you're talking about some of these patients who are active and maybe they have short-term pain or maybe they have long-term pain. I know many people who have fibromyalgia or type 1 or type 2 diabetes who deal with neuropathy pain all day long. Are you utilizing non-psychoactive, whole plant, um, CBD-rich products for the people that are Needing to go to work and be clear headed, still need that micro dose of THC, but also can't really have that intoxication factor due to their employment situation. Are you utilizing those types of products as well?
2: Well, we. Uh The answer to that is is kind of complicated, but the the short of it is that when uh, when it suits the situation, absolutely. Um, The biggest problem is that the studies that show that CBD is useful for pain in particular tend to suggest that we need extraordinarily high doses of CBD and that that's sort of out of the financial reach of most of my patients at this point. so there's a bit of a push-pull there between what might be of uh, helpful uh, if we can access it versus what we have access to.
1: Well, I really appreciate your time today. How can our listeners work with you and get a hold of you and your team?
2: Oh, um, anybody who's interested should uh, go to my website, which is inhalemd.com. And from there, you can get our phone number and or you can fill out a web form, which comes pretty much right to my desk. And uh, we would love to hear from you. If you have questions, we're happy to help. And if you're looking for some more long-term or in-depth guidance, we do online consultations and, um, you know, we'd love to hear from you.
1: Well, we truly appreciate all of the information you shared today. We have to wrap it up. So to continue this discussion, visit asexwellness.com. Download episodes by going to CannabisRadio.com or subscribing to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. You can also follow the show on social media by searching A6 Wellness. We can't forget to give a tremendous thank you to our guest today, Dr. Jordan Tischler. It was amazing and wonderful chatting with you and learning again so much. And lastly, thank you to my producer, George, for another great show. Until then, awaken, adjust, aspire, affirm, action. A6